stuff made me start uh, asking some questions of myself and of, of my faith. And so I, I want to pre-apologize to you. Last week I told you we would be talking about suffering and compassion this week. Uh, we're going to go out of order because uh, we're going to talk about that in two weeks, so <laughs> be excited. Suffering. Um, but realizing that we just haven't, for a lot of us, we just haven't even, we're not there yet to even talk about the theology of suffering and stuff. So we're going to backtrack. Um, this week, we're going to talk about your body being a voice that's worth listening to. Next week, we're going to have a uh, a panel where a few people are going to share how their body has helped or hindered how God reveals God's self and how they understand Scripture. Because we need to be honest that I only understand Scripture through the eyes that I have. And, and the fact that I live in white skin and I'm a male and that I am born at the time that I am born in the country that I am born, all of that informs it. None of that I need to apologize for, but I need to be honest that that, that, that helps me interpret Scripture. And, and we all need to understand our own. Uh, in this series, I'm going to say this every week. For some of us, it might feel like this is a silly thing to say, but for others, we need it. We're, we're talking about stuff that maybe you don't think or talk about a lot. Maybe you do. But if you don't and something kicks up and you're uncomfortable or you are like, no, I don't want to talk about this, I don't want to think about this, you, you can drift to the back. You can do whatever you need to do. You can use the restroom. You can put in some headphones. You can check your email. Whatever you need. Because there is a reality that we all have a threshold that when we cross that, all of a sudden we feel really unsafe. And we're trying to talk about all of this in very safe ways. And yet if, I, if you feel it, it is true. Okay? So you just have permission to do whatever you need to do. We're not talking about anything that... Uh, we're uncomfortable to have children in the room or any of that, so like, it's none of that, but we're all in different places, and I want to recognize that, okay? Okay, now that we're thoroughly scared, let's pray, <laughs> and it won't be nearly as scaring as all the warning labels I just gave it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're in this place. We thank you that you reside in our bodies, and we admit that the mystery of that uh, we don't fully understand, and we don't always feel, and we don't always acknowledge, but your word says it's true, and so many of the faithful who've gone before us and alongside us have experienced that, and so we trust their word. And so now as we look at a, a story from Scripture, we ask that you would intervene, that you would teach us, that you'd move in us, and we thank you in your name. Amen. Okay. If you have it, a Bible, or on your phone, I would love if you opened up to 1 Samuel. We're going to sit in this the whole time. I think it's good for your eyes to be able to read it, slide it up and down. Um, I think that's going to be helpful. I don't know Hebrew, so I'm going to say some of these names poorly. So just sorry for, to them. Okay, We're going to look at verse 1 and 2 as we start. There was a certain, 1 Samuel 1, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 1, we're starting with 1 and 2. There was a certain man of Ramatham, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of 
Tahu, son of Zuf. That is why my parents named me Matt. <laughs> he was an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Okay, as you look at that, this is questions that I'm asking you like out loud. Go ahead and respond. What do we know about Elkanah, the husband? Multiple wives. What else do we know? Hill country of Ephraim. Children from one wife. We know his lineage, right? We know his father and his grandfather and all that. What do we know of Hannah? She had no children. That's what she was known for. And there's only one other piece that we know about her. She was married. She was married. Now here's something culturally that is usually true in what we, what we call the Old Testament, okay? The wife who is named first is known as the primary wife. So Hannah is the primary wife in this marriage. People then have secondary wives for other reasons, and we'll get into that in a minute. Sometimes they're called, like, sometimes our translation will call them concubines, and we often then think that they are like, almost like a form of prostitute. It's not that, but it is this like secondary status that's for other reasons. And so, we're going to talk about why this is significant for, for a second. For Hannah, the fact that Hannah cannot have children is one of the only reasons that her husband has to just go to the, the city gates and divorce her. She can't have children. I can't be married to her. I can't afford to feed her because she can't produce what I need. We're, we're going to talk in a little bit of harsh terms today, but I think, I think we need to because it helps us understand ourselves, okay? The understanding at this time of immortality is not really heaven and living eternally. It is that my name will go on forever. That is what immortality is seen as. And so, like, let's zoom into my family for a second. My grandpa had, my grandpa and grandma had nine children, all of them born with the name Ness. Four of them were males, so they kept the name Ness. Two of them had males. So this giant family, when I talk about all the hundred and lots of us, Durant is one of the few people carrying on the name. There's only, there's only four carrying on the name to the next generation. And that would be seen as my dad's immortality. If Durant does not have a male heir, and if the others don't have a male heir, then my dad is not immortal. My dad has died physically, and his legacy has died. Does that make some sense? And some, some of that lives on in, like, our culture too, right? Like, there's a lot about carrying on a family name or a family lineage. or Like, that's not totally foreign to us. But that, what is probably more foreign is that um, that's what eternity is also seen as. You know, they, they, don't, they don't fully have the idea of 
living forever with God. Um, so that part's a little different. Okay, so this is where the second wife comes in. If your first wife cannot bear you a child and you choose not to divorce her, then you would take on a second wife who bears you a child. So this is a little bit like what we see with Abraham and Sarah, right? You go to that story. Hagar is brought in kind of like a wife, though it's really tricky because she's a slave girl. So she, like women do not have like a real choice in a lot of this. And we can't ignore that either. But the second wife or third wives are brought on to bear children so that the, the father, the patriarch, can keep an immortal legacy going. Okay, so all of that is in play here. There's a real risk for Hannah. There's a real pressure if she cannot bear not just a child, but a son. She is not doing what she is supposed to do. It's a lot of pressure to put on your body. Then there's also the fact that in this culture, your husband is a lot older than you. Usually when it talks about people getting married, the female is just at the age that she could produce a child, and the male is at the age that he could support people. So the male might be late 20s, 30, beyond. The female would be in her teen years. And so there's this idea that if he dies, who's going to care for Hannah? If Hannah doesn't have a male son, then she's dependent on the city to care for her. She's dependent on, like, who, who's, who's going to do it? And so there's this real, like, scary physical need to have a son who would then, even if he's a baby, if her husband dies, then there's an inheritance of the husband's that belongs to her son that she could then live on, right? So there's some real physical, some real social, like, pressure on her here. And then there's just the desire to have a kid. Sadly, and we got to pay attention to this, sadly, that's like third. The desire to be a mom comes up after all of this survival stuff. And we need to pay attention to this because in our culture, there are a lot of people who are feeling just human urges that are beautiful, that cannot attend to them because they have needs of survival and existence that are more pressing. And so they never get to pay attention to the fact that I just, I want to be a mom. Instead, she has to say, I want to survive. For a woman at this time, if she's divorced, her options are, are really prostitution or going to her father's home. She can glean in the fields, but it, it's not harvest day every day. And so those are, those are the options. So this is a real consequence, okay? Heavy enough? Okay, let's go on. The next, the next verses, we're going to read three through six now. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion. 
because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Just let you stew on that for a second. There's a lot happening in here. So yearly, this family makes a trip to worship, and this family is both wives. They're, they're riding in the same minivan. They're staying in the same Airbnb. Elkanah offers the sacrifice. Everyone gets a portion, but Hannah gets a double portion because she's loved. And then the understanding of God and how God works comes out in the Scripture twice there even though her womb is closed by God, even though God has closed her womb. One of the things we're going to talk about in this series, and I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards, and we can just toss ideas, is I believe that, that this is all inspired by God, and at the same time, I believe it was written by people about their real understanding of God. And I think we see some changing in the understanding of God. And we're going to talk about this in the suffering week. It's not that people are lying or people are wrong, but I don't think today that we would say that God is closing wombs necessarily. A lot of us wouldn't describe that as God, but that's how God was seen there. And we'll get into this in the suffering week. But does that mean punishment? Does that mean testing? What does that mean? But the understanding is that God chose to close her womb and open the womb of her rival, the other wife. And her rival poked fun at her. Is it because she's a horrible person? I don't think so. I think she poked fun at her because culturally she was blessed and Hannah was cursed. And she's the second wife. She's the one producing the heir She's the one producing what the husband wants, and yet the Hannah is the one who's loved. That would kick up some emotion. That would kick up some pain. Why don't you divorce her and let me be the first wife? Why am I second? These are real people, right? So there's a lot going on there. Okay. Next verse, verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? How is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Very seriously, I think we need to look at this verse especially us guys. I, I sat in my office, this is not shock, shocking, but I sat crying when I read this this week because I have dismissed and patronized people, which is what he's doing here. Aren't I enough? Aren't I better than 10 sons? That's cute that you feel that way, but aren't I better? We, we can't do this to each other. Hannah has real pain. And he tries to like give her like a dumb, dumb lollipop and fix it. No, we've got to be a people who sit in pain together. That's where the healing is going to be. She's being honest about what her body is feeling, the pain and the ache that she has, 
And he's trying to like, ah, shucks her a little bit. And I'm not making fun of him because I find myself in it. I find that I have done that. Not proud of it. And especially as, as men in our culture and especially as white men in our culture, we feel like we have permission to just go around and like, you'll be all right. When what really needs to happen is, okay, maybe, maybe I'll, I won't eat with you. I'm hungry, but you're aching, so let, let me join you in that. Thankfully, Hannah has somewhere to go, and that's, that's what we see here. Verse 9, this is the longest chunk we're going to read, and then we're just going to talk about it, okay? At verse 9, it says, After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman of deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I am speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. There's a lot in this. There's a lot on embodied faith in this. So she starts with a vow, a dangerous one. If you give me, and pay attention, a male child... She says, I'll give them back. A Nazarite vow means never cut hair, uh, never drink, and will serve in the temple. And so she says, I will give you this son back. Now scholars have looked at this and thought that would, that's all that she means, but most believe that what is meant here is I will give my offering of first fruits, and you will give me more children. You'll give me more sons. who I'll trust you with my first son, and you will give me more sons who will then take care of my needs. But either way, she makes a fairly dangerous vow there, right? I'm understanding that, I am, that you have closed my womb, but if you open it, I will give that right back to you. And she's so emotional, because she should be, not because of any other reason, but because it's real. She's so emotional that the priest who's just sitting there is like, hey, drunk lady, put the wine away dismisses it all misses it all now hannah brilliantly is able to defend herself but that doesn't always happen right and it doesn't it shouldn't need to happen she shouldn't need to be able to brilliantly defend herself but she does and she says some powerful things here i've been pouring out my soul before the lord I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. And if you read on, 
Eli still half understands. Okay. We're going to stop here and just breathe ourselves. Okay? This is as far as we're going to go in 1 Samuel. Let's have an honest conversation about our bodies and what we're getting out of this text. In Genesis 2, we see that God breathed life into the Adam, into the human, right? We, we, we've all read that there. That person was filled with God's breath. In Genesis 1, it tells of the image bearers, male and female, as image bearers, right? So here's a, this is a very real question. Who are the descendants of the one in whom God breathed God's breath? Who are the descendants of the ones who are image bearers? Those people, those bodies, are worth listening to, both for themselves and for one another. I want you to think about this for real. What do you believe? And also, what messages have you heard? This story in 1 Samuel is a story about a woman, right? It, it, it's, it's, we're going to spend time talking about different categories of people, but that was a story of, of a woman, a childless woman. And in her culture, she did not have a voice. In fact, her voice was just assumed to be silly. Aren't I worth ten sons? Or to be intoxicated. Put your drink away. In ours, some places aren't that different. This week I had a long conversation with someone where I had to defend women in ministry. And I was like, uh, look around. Have you looked at the, ch- the story of the historically black church? Have you looked at third world countries? Have you looked at, even truthfully, a white church in the U.S. who's really doing stuff? Not who's getting credit, but who's doing stuff. Have you looked at Scripture? And at, at the core, that question is a question of can a woman really teach a man something? particularly about something as important as God. And there's always interesting things that a woman can teach our children something, but at some age, that boy becomes just way too smart and needs to hear from from other men because they're the only ones who can teach. This has ramifications, guys. This has ramifications where all of a sudden women in general are being dismissed, or women who are not married, or women who are not married with children, or people who are not living in this binary of male and female, but who are living and exploring different ways of identifying themselves. Are they made in the image of God? And as people made in the image of God, they are worth hearing and knowing But we, we need to wrestle, okay. Is that what we believe and not just believe? Is that what we are acting out of? Is that what's coming out of our faith? In this country, this is hard, but this is reality. There was a compromise a long time ago that still lives on where an African-American was seen as three-fifths human, right? There was an understanding 
that white males could do whatever to black female bodies, and whatever came of that belonged to the white male. Whether that was wanted or not, that's just what it was. And we know that what our ancestors went through, we feel. I might not have gone through it, but it's in my body. It is in our story. It is in our legacy. There's horrible caricatures of the the black male as being able to tolerate more pain, so we should be harsher on him. Or, Or things like that. Where really what is being said is it is a different type of human. These people are a different type of human. What is that being said? Well, then they've got to prove that they are image bearers. They've got to prove that the breath of God is in them like he is us. This is happening, guys. In this country, what if someone doesn't speak English? Or if they dress in their cultural dress that is different than, than this? Gray pants and a blue shirt. Well, what if in the last couple of years, what if their heritage is, is being from Asia? That's not an easy life in that body right now. When I talk to my Asian friends, they're like, it, it's scary walking around Asian right now. We didn't know what other people went through until, until now. In our actions, in our words, in the way that we're, we're learning from people or we're paying attention to people, are we just dismissing each other? Or are we really recognizing that is somebody who is an image bearer. That is somebody with the breath of God. And because of that, that is somebody, somebody that God is revealing who God is to. And I can then go receive from, go learn from, go listen to. We love the verse, Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ. But is Paul saying that gender is just thrown away? No, it's not. Is he saying ethnicity doesn't matter? No, not at all. In fact, I think in the early church we see that ethnicity greatly matters. Is he saying that our, our social standing should just go away? No, it's not. Still recognizing that at the time there are slaves and free, but he is calling out that there is no distinction in power, in authority, in who matters, in whose voice matters. There are males and females, but it is not, no longer a place where males can say, hey, you're a female. I don't have to listen. There are slaves and free, but it is no longer a place where the free can say, you're just a slave, I don't see you as, as human. No, instead, it's a how in the world did you keep a faith while you were bound to slavery? Teach me. Help me understand. It was a place where some ethnicities were favored and some were dismissed. And yet God was showing up in each one. Teach me of this mystery. Help me understand your experience. Let me show you mine. Let's, let's grow. Let's be transformed. Let's change. These distinctions are beautiful, but all have access to God and all are worthy of being heard. So let's, let's change it this way. One of the things... When, when a few people have visited us, one of the things they point out right away is that we have little kids in the room and little kids who wander around 
and they always love it. Parents, if you're wondering, the guests who tell me always love it. You might not. It might freak you out. That's okay. Here's what hopefully we're teaching our kids. You matter today. Not someday. Your voice matters right now. You matter right now. You participating in worship matters right now because you are fully human with the breath of God, the image of God on you right now. And if that means that you're a little louder, some of us would like to be a little louder too. So we'll follow your lead. It's beautiful. Parents, I get that you might wrestle with it, and that's fine. I know we do sometimes too because Anna likes to yell at me or uh, she was playing with her parrot last week that repeated everything that we say. We get it. But we want you to know that the kids belong because we're trying to live into this theology where, yes, they are image bearers. Yes, we have something to learn from them because they're experiencing God just as us. On the other side, in our culture, I've become a little bit more aware that just like young people are dismissed, we do the same to the older. We do the same to people who are aging. I talked to a a friend of mine this week who, she's getting older just like I am, but she's feeling it more. And she's retired, and she's in the ministry. She had a fall a couple months ago, and her body doesn't heal quite like it used to. And she had a big meeting last week where she had to physically sit down for like extremely long days. And her body ached and has some marks from the fall. And everyone in the room noticed. And when we talked, I could just hear the grief in her voice. And she said, you know, the same word, invalid, also spells invalid, and that's all I feel like now. Because I'm older, and my body isn't working like it did, and isn't healing like it did, I feel like I'm just dismissed. And nobody asks me about it. They just look past me. Is the image of God on her? Yeah. Is the breath of God in her? Yes. So we need to be attentive and care. She's been a giant for the kingdom of God and yet is grieving and feeling this pain that maybe now, because she's just older, she's invalid. Real close to to my life, last week we took little Anna to a trunk retreat. We went to, no, it wasn't a trunk retreat. It It was a boo at the zoo. We went to the zoo. And, um, Anna, you, you guys know her. She likes to lean on us all the time, and we go through the zoo, and she walks extremely close, and that's how we do it. She has some vision challenges. Um, she's got some physical challenges. All of that, if I'm being honest, all of that you probably have caught on, but sometimes people just think she's a little quiet and think she's a little younger than she is. But as we're coming to grips with the fact that she's about to turn 18, we... Um, we got her a stroller, like an adult stroller. And um, she loves this thing. She pushes her stuffed animals around in it, and then when we go to something like the zoo, she can sit in it, and she can finally see what's at the zoo because she's not concentrating on where her feet go, and, and she can actually enjoy things. And um, I was a wreck. Because little Anna loves being Anna. She loves her life, and she loved all the Moanas and Annas and Elsa and all these people, and had her picture taken and was screaming at every one of them. 
And it was beautiful, and she was so happy. Right, Anna? And I noticed how people looked at us different than when she just leans on us. And I noticed how I felt different. Because her body has challenges that can easily be ignored and just be seen as she's quiet. And when she's living life, loving it in that stroller, I see all of it. And I just wept, guys. Not feeling bad for her. She's happy. But feeling bad that I've dismissed her. That I think I've come to grips with stuff. But there's, oh yeah, there's real challenges that she faces every day. And maybe that's why she's crabby sometimes. And maybe that's why I've got to lean on her sometimes. But can she experience God? I'll tell you what. You put on her favorite worship music, she'll outsing you. You've probably seen the video of her singing Jesus Loves Me where she falls over. She's so excited. When an ambulance passes her, she's the first one to say amen and pray for the one who's hurt. Does she know that God's breath is in her body? Absolutely. Does she know that she's made in God's image? Absolutely. Do I? Do we? And what about all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the city, like Anna, that we don't necessarily see? We don't necessarily notice. They're not necessarily in the same spaces as us, so we just don't know they're there. Why are they not in the same spaces? Because that's kind of the culture we've set up. There are families in our church who love our church that we haven't seen for years because their kids are a little like Anna. It's just easier to stay home. It's not that you're not loving. It's just easier. It's hard to put yourself back out there. It's hard, but isn't the image of God on her? Absolutely. And Anna, I'm going to show them. She's an artist. All day she's been working on her, her drawings. <laughs> if you want an original, she's got about 73 that she's done during this sermon. No one makes A's like Anna. So what, what is it that we see with someone with different abilities? Or with disease? Are we just dismissing people? Are we saying that they're less? Or is there something that we're saying, hey, help me to understand. People that I know who deal with chronic depression and yet are faithful to wake up every morning and go through life, help me understand. That, that's profoundly faithful. I had a season of depression that was enough. The people who just live there, Teach me what that's like. Help me know how you see God. Because it's beautiful that you keep waking up and going through life. The people who deal with disease or illness where their body is failing them, that is beautiful faithfulness that they keep going, often silently because we don't listen well. But what if we become a church that starts to? So we've talked about one church being a place where we can gather around the table where everybody belongs at the table. But I also think, what if we're a church where not only everyone belongs at the table, but everyone's voice deserves to be heard around that table? What if we became that? What if we became curious about each other, not, not intrusively, but honestly, and we listened? 
So as I wrap up, and I think I went really long today, but forgive me. Uh, as we wrap up, there's this story of Hannah. And after studying this story, uh, like me, some of you might have some, some apologizing to do. There might be some people that you didn't listen to well. There might be some ways that you've treated someone like they're less human. And you would never say it or believe it, but your action showed it. I want to encourage you, if, if you're like me, then maybe slow down and pay attention. Go in and work towards writing those relationships. Go listen. Go hear somebody. But more important, there are some of us who might relate to Hannah here. You've had an ache for something that makes food not very satisfying. You just, you just can't eat. You just ache. Maybe you're left physically vulnerable and you can't think of the trauma that you went through. You're just trying to survive day after day. Or maybe physically you're finally safe and that trauma is just loud and in your face and you don't know how to go forward. Maybe you've been dismissed thrown aside. I want you to know how this story ends. Hannah does have a son, but that isn't always what happens, so that isn't even what I want to focus on here. Because some of us ache like Hannah and the, the son never comes. But I think it's pretty meaningful that Hannah, on her own, names her son. Not with her husband. She names him. She names him Samuel L, which means that God has heard. God hears you. In the similar story in Genesis, where we talked earlier about Abraham, Sarah, well, the other mother, the second mother, was from a different people. She's the second wife, is in a dangerous situation she's put out because her body is no longer needed and valued. And she has an encounter with God. In that space where she's completely vulnerable, she calls that space God sees. So here's what I know. God hears you. And God sees you. And if you breathe in right now, Breathe it in like God's breath was breathed into you. And as you breathe out, breathe out as the image bearer that you are. After communion in a second, Whitney will lead us through some questions if you want to stay. We're going to actually gather up here and pull up some chairs and that. And we have some questions to keep talking. So far I say we're talking, but I got the mic. This will be like actual talking uh, for 20 minutes or so. There's some spiritual directors in the room. There's prayer available. But from where you are, God sees you. And God hears you. And, and that won't take the ache away. That doesn't seem to fix everything I know. But there is something profound to this God who is with us, seeing and hearing. And maybe God is creating a community here where we might also see and hear one another. Let's pray.